I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's east side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next, and thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, many people, I think, are familiar with the, the play, the movie, 12 Angry Men. Well, there's a variation in, of that particular uh, story that's called 12 Mo Angry Men, the person who wrote that and is directing it at Ujima Theater is with us this morning. That's Tanisha Fordham. Hi, Tanisha. Hey, how are you? I am great, and I'm thrilled to, that you're going to be with us for the next hour. Thanks very really much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so much I want to get into uh, with regards to this. Uh, first of all, let's, just general speaking, what drew you to make an, a, a variation of 12 Angry Men? I, a variation is probably not the right way to just describe it, but uh, for lack of a better term, what, what drew you to this? Yeah, so at the top of the pandemic, everything shut down, and I was at home stressed out, <laughs> let me tell you. So I took up distance cycling, and literally I was cycling like 50 to 100 miles every day, <laughs> which with hindsight is so funny. But one of the things that I would do while I was distance cycling is I would listen to books on tape. Okay. Um, I listened to Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, and all of these just kind of different books, and um, Black Like Me was another one of my like really favorite uh, one of my favorites. So I listened to Reginald Rose's audio play version of Twelve Angry Men, and it was interesting because I think at that point it may have been just a few weeks after Breonna Taylor had been shot and mm. killed, and I was just rocked and riveted by how relevant that story still was in light of everything that was happening in our modern America. I was thinking about what is happening in these jury rooms and these deliberations that the verdict is coming back with no justice being served to so many people. Sometimes in some of the cases, there wasn't even an indictment. Like what is happening? And I thought about, um, what would happen if we changed the jury, if the jury wasn't an all-white male jury, but that we had an all-black jury? And um, what would happen if those individuals were voting on the guilt or innocence of a white officer who shot and killed a black teen? And here's the thing. On the surface, that seems like such an, a kind of obvious answer. But the truth of the matter, and I think something that people really don't realize— Black people are not a monolith. Right, right. right. I don't, and I, and I, I mean, I feel like that goes without saying. It's something that I shouldn't even have to say. But we do that to every, we do that to everyone. I kind of feel like whatever group you're a part of, however you identify, you realize that your group is not a monolith. But then you're like, oh, those Republicans, sure. oh, the white men, oh, the black girls. Oh, the Jewish people. And it's like, you don't know all Jewish people. You you might not even know one Jewish person. Right. So I, I believe that it was really, really important to investigate how we are all so different. Every person, every singular person, no matter what group they identify with, is so different. And so this was an opportunity to investigate how uh, people show up very differently, but specifically speaking to um 
the kind of pandemic that is happening with black people being killed by police officers. And it's interesting that you use the term investigate. And I want to, and you can maybe take me through the playwrights process. You, you, you wear a lot of hats when it comes to, to the theater, but take me through the, the playwright process. You say you want to investigate it. So we know we have a, a police in the story, mm-hmm. a police officer, a white police officer has shot a 16 year old black man. Mm-hmm. We have, a jury of 12, mm-hmm. 11 black people, one white person. That's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you went to investigate. What were you looking for? How did how did you how did your investigation yeah, proceed? Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, so first and foremost, there were so many kind of inspirations that I pulled from. Um there's an officer his name is Officer Tommy Norman. I think he's T Norman on Instagram. Um I don't have social media anymore, but at the time I did. And Officer Norman is an officer somewhere in the south. I'm not sure what city or state, so I won't make it up. But if you can, he's a real, he's a real officer and he's a white police officer and whatever state and city he polices in, it's mostly African-American community. And if you can see, he, he takes these videos of him, like going through the city. Sometimes he stops at people's houses. Sometimes he stops at people's schools. When I tell you, when this man walks up the street, the children, I am not exaggerating, run up to him. Officer Nauman, Officer Nauman. And they literally like throw their bodies at him. They hug his legs. They know him by name, his first and last name. They know him by name. He brings them presents to their birthday parties. And this man, I don't even know if the children realize how much of a gift they have and how, and if he realizes how much of a gift he has that they have somehow figured out how to see each other as human first. Mm. Mm. And I thought it was so interesting what would happen if that officer ended up being the person who shot and killed someone. Because so often we don't, we're not talking about people's best selves when we're talking about people's humanity in in these cases. Not the people who are killed, not the officers, not the people who are surrounding the investigation, the people who do the investigation, not the jurors. It's like the worst parts of people that are put on display. So that was the first thing that I wanted to kind of have a conversation about or investigate. So you're already sympathetic then with with the killer in this Uh, case. uh, Well, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Let me be very clear. I'm sympathetic with Officer Tommy Norman. All right. <laughs> okay. I want to be very specific. All I'm right. office, I'm All right. I am I am sympathetic with Officer Tommy Norman and I thought about what would happen if Officer Tommy Norman. I don't know that I'm sympathetic with a killer. You know okay. what I mean? I don't know, but I am also able to always look at people as human and ask the question about their humanity and their frailties. That's what I'm always sympathetic to and that's what I'm always able to do. So that was kind of the first piece, considering people's humanity. But then also, I found myself in so many conversations with friends and family members where things were said that literally I felt like brain cells were dying. I literally felt Like, how can you say that? How can you feel that way? How can you say it out loud? How can you, for example, I'll give you a specific example. When uh, the Trayvon Martin case was happening, I was living in Greensboro at the time and had just graduated from an HBCU, a black college. And I just remember there being kind of all of this very divisive conversation around Trayvon Martin and the whole the, the, how the whole situation kind of unfolded. And I felt so sad hearing people talking about him with this hoodie on. Oh. And that was something that, for example, killed brain cells for me. Are we talking about 
a hoodie? Is that what this conversation is about? He's a little boy. He's just a baby. He's a baby and he wasn't doing anything. And to highlight the fact that he was a baby, he was buying Skittles Mm. and an Arizona tea. Hmm. He was just out here being a child. I remember when I used to go to Sacred Heart, that's where, you know, I graduated from Sacred Heart, Buffalo Academy of Sacred Heart. And my grandparents sometimes would drop me off after doctor's appointments in the morning. And my grandmother would send me into the corner store to get something. And I remember that I would get Air, airheads. Mm. I would get airheads and a soda. And I just think about, I see myself in, in that little boy and we're talking about hoodies. And so I feel like those conversations made me question all of the ways that black people show up in these spaces. I think that we just assume it's a black person and a black child or a black man or a black woman was killed. So all black people are going to say we should convict this cop it doesn't matter whatever has happened we should and that's not and that's not the case Mm. and there are many many reasons why people think that people should get convicted or should not and i wanted to really have a conversation about it so that we can start kind of like thinking about how we're going to change the world realistically because i think we talk about it in kind of like broad strokes of course and they're very specific things that have to be addressed in order for us to impact the world that we live in tanisha fordham is with us on what's next this morning talking about her her play, 12 Mo Angry Men. All right, so we only have so much time in a play, okay. and we I assume we just have the scene inside the juror's room, right? Yep. How, how much do we get to know about these jurors during this time? What are they showing us about, our, about themselves, and, and how did you go about, like, going back to the whole investigation concept? Yeah. How did you come to, to find these people? Yeah, so I want to just continue to just as much as I can really salute and honor Reginald Rose. His original text was so genius. And I was just so inspired by the clarity of these people, the clarity of each juror, even though there, there wasn't a tremendous amount said about their personal lives, but you can tell, you do know them, you know them. Well, Mm -hmm. every word that comes out of their mouth is a whole narrative about who you are and where you came from and how you see the world. And so I felt inspired by the challenge of doing that. How can every single time a juror opens up their mouth, Uh, be an opportunity for us as the audience to see who that person is, whether it's dialect, like the, the story is actually a story of folks in Mississippi. um, But there are jurors who speak with um, even more kind of pronounced dialect, specifically juror nine. She's an older juror and she speaks with a lot of won'ts and uh, her grammar is kind of all over the place. And she's not speaking with the um, uh, standard American English. And that tells us something about who she is and where she comes from and her level of maybe education. And I wanted every single word to have that kind of, um, pointedness where we're able to pull something from each word. There are a few uh, jurors who feel very comfortable cursing Mm. or using the N word. The N word is used quite a bit, but it's really only used by one juror and that juror uses it a lot. And then one of the jurors has to kind of challenge her about why are you using this word? We're in a professional space and there are people around who are your elders and why don't you respect that? And so there's a lot of conversation, even just in that one, in like I said, one word or one sure. sentence that tells us a lot about each juror. Also though, one thing that I did do that I 
don't think that uh, Reginald Rose did. And I think that it, it's still honor to him because I don't think it was necessary, but I think it was necessary for me in order to make the characters a little more clear. I do have kind of short monologues for each character, okay. each juror, with the exception of two and six. Two and six really don't have monologues, but that's that also tells us a lot about them. Sure. That everyone else is kind of like bearing their all and two and six do not. So the monologues tell a lot. I think I've, I've seen the film on... Turner Classics in okay. the last year or so. So I have I have a, I have a, some some memory of it, but it seems to me that there there were if not one or more than one juror. They start off very. They, let's get this done. Come on, I've got to go to a ball game. I want to go. To, I I don't want to be wa- wasting my time in here, and that changes. How about that? How did you work again? Action. We're going to use the word action. Not a lot of action in terms of the, the classic use of the word inside one jury room, right. but there is a lot in terms of character development and change. Take me through that process a well, little bit. It's so interesting. I think, well, we get the really kind of cool thing is we get to see them vote twice. They actually vote in this production, they vote twice. Okay. Um, the second time that they vote is closer, near to the end. And Almost every person, not every person, but many of the people have changed. Really? Um, and that does not, and that, and let me say, that is not to say that they ultimately change from their original vote. <laughs> but there is, we we see them all vote one way, and then throughout the life of the narrative, most of them change at least at one point. So there is a change. There really are. There really. There really is only one juror who kind of is like, no, this is what it is, and that's what it's going to be. Uh, but we do really get an opportunity to see that kind of active struggle uh, that I think, honestly, oh, oh my gosh, I can't watch the news. I can't watch the news. I can't talk to people about what's happening in the news because I just feel so personally burdened by what is happening day to day. And I also feel so personally burdened about all of the perspectives and the opposing views. I feel so personally burdened when I hear that someone has been killed. And I feel equally burdened when I think about killing someone because someone has been killed. And so I think that that my personal struggle, I think is very alive inside of the script. Um, And the last thing I'll say to your action point, there is, there's a lot of actual physical action. (laughs) Oh, really? <laughs> Which well, things really, get heated, of course, right? Yeah, and I'm really excited about And we talked a lot about that inside of the rehearsal space. We talked about how, um, from an audible perspective and from a spatial perspective, how would a jury deliberation filled with African-American people feel differently than a jury that is uh, maybe more diverse or may, or all white men? Because, you know, the truth of the matter is black people were, were a lively bunch. You, if you ever come to our family reunions and picnics and birthday parties, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. So we have fun inside the jury room? So we have some of that. We have definitely how alive the space would be um, and how energized that space would be with a mostly African-American cast or group of jurors. Is uh, the conversation more than just about what the actual case is? Does it get into the the kind of complexities of the law? Or is it more just, just, is it, more of the focus on the interpersonal relationships that are going on. (laughs) So I think in a 70 minute long piece, 
maybe the four minutes and 50 seconds of hearing Nazi and Officer White's actual interaction, that might be the only time that is dedicated to the actual case. <laughs> I mean, I might be I might be exaggerating a bit. There may be, a, I'm not, but I'm actually not exaggerating that I think the five-minute audio and then maybe 10 minutes where the foreman is like, come on, folks. Th- those are kind of the two moments where we really see uh, what is happening specifically inside of the case. I think mostly we are listening to people talk about their own identities, their own biases, their own way that they see this case based off of what happened to them when they were 10 or seven or 20 years old or when they came from the country that they moved from. And honestly, I think whether or not we want to admit that that's what's happening in a lot of conversations. I hear people tell me all the time about how they see me, my community, my upbringing. And it's, and it's based off of what you haven't had any conversation with me. You don't know how many people I've heard say that I'm, I, me, I'm talking about me, Tanisha, that I'm militant. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you that that is the silliest thing? Anyone (laughs) who knows me, like my mom, my husband, my closest friends would think that is the silliest thing ever. I've never been in a fight. Me. I've never been in a fight. I don't like confrontation. I mean, I literally, if I have to have a, a, just, I mean, if if you and I were to just have a small little spat right now, when I go home, I would be sobbing. I would literally tell my, we go on here. You know, but, but they're basing it off of whatever their own perception is of me based off of the fact that I have locks or based off of the fact that I don't mind just saying like black. Like I said, I'm a black girl. And there's like, oh, she's militant. No, I'm not militant. I am a black so girl. People That's have, why... have people actually said that to you? You're militant? Oh, yeah. People have called me militant. Yeah. I've been in, well, we've been together now for about 45 minutes and that, that would probably be the last. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> last like, I, thought I, like that, but <laughs> I have. Yeah, I actually have had had people say that, particularly when I was. I, 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 wait, had... wait, let's maybe explore that for a second. Okay. What, what does that say about the the people that say that mm-hmm. and just that image of the militant black woman yeah. black person what yeah. does that say i don't know you know i what i will say I felt so sad because it was said a lot when i was mrs new jersey i was mrs new jersey united states in 2018 um and competed for the mrs united states pageant and there was just a lot of conversation around like my hair and my weight and all of these things and I felt so overwhelmed, like my hair grows out of my head this way. Like, I don't know. I know you, I know you, you all, I know that there is a perception that like perhaps I should have straight hair or I don't know. Um, but I think that it really is more a reflection of the images. And this is why I'm, I'm going to finish that, but real quick. That's fine. It's really important that we tell a variety of stories, that there are myriad of representations of folk, that we see black women with locks who are very loving and kind and gentle, that we see black women with locks who are militant because both exist. But I think in in the imaging of like what we see in news and media and films, we often only see one kind of black woman with a fro or locks or whatever the case may be. And so then to answer your question, what ends up happening is that people project that version of what they've seen on television, in the media, on social media. They project that onto me. They say, oh, I know you. You're you're Angela Davis. I saw the Angela Davis film. You're Angela Davis. And it's like, no, I'm not. Angela Davis was amazing, but I am not her. Um, and that is why it is important that we see lots of representations of all people so that we realize that people show up in a myriad of ways. We are talking with Tanisha Fordham this morning. She is the director. She's the writer of 12 Mo Angry Men at Ujima Theater through uh, December 17th. Uh, 
you've pr- produced this elsewhere, of course. Yes. 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 D- down in the uh, New York City, New Jersey area That's as right. well. Yep. How did that go? Oh, it was great. Yeah. It was so good. We did it the first time for the mayor's office in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, we did a four-weekend run of it in Newark, and it was uh, predominantly, almost um, maybe even completely and exclusively, but it was definitely a predominantly African-American audience. Okay. Um, we did it outside. It was theater in the park, so that was also really cool because it was in the heart of Newark, and there was a lot going on because it was the summer right after things began to open after the pandemic. Right. So people were in the streets for no reason. People were just outside like, I can go outside. I'm just going to go outside and wander. <laughs> so even like my bicycle group, this distance group that I, I started riding with a group, like I told you earlier, right. this group that I was riding with, they even literally rode, they rode, rode their bicycles to the performance. It was like 50 cyclists came out of nowhere. So we got to do it there. And it was really interesting because there we had a girl Nazi and a boy Nazi, and then we had a woman, Officer White. Um, My zenith kind of vision of this, if I were ever to get to do it like on Broadway, I think my zenith vision is that we would cast a a young man and a young woman as Nazi. We'd have two, we'd double cast them, and then we'd have a man and a woman, Officer White, because it is impeccable. It is riveting to see how people vote when it's a little girl Nazi. Versus how people vote when it's a little boy Nazi and not only how people vote, but what people say, because when we did it in in Newark, we had a talk back every after every show. And so it's so interesting just to hear what people had to say um, when we did that. And so I think that would be like the, the best way that I could kind of see it being done because I think even audiences would have the opportunity to come back see it again come see it again now that with a little boy let's see it again with a little girl now let's see it if Officer White is a woman let's see it if, if Officer White is a man and how that kind of mix up of casting changes how people feel and that's I don't know I don't I'm not even sure that I've come to the conclusion about what that says but it says something about the way that we view people so just to be clear so you, at the end of the the show the audience gets the chance to to vote on yes. what they they just saw. What yep. if guilty, Officer White is guilty or guilty innocent. or not guilty? And you're saying that if if you change the characteristic of the officer, or the characteristic of the victim, it changes the response of the audience in terms of guilty or not guilty. Yeah, and I do want to be clear: we have never, even up to this point with the run at Ujima, we have never had a audience vote either guilty or innocent every single time we've done the voting it's been hung so oh. we have a split so so there's I, I can't say that it changes it in terms of like everyone makes the same decision but what I will say is especially again like I said when I get to hear the talk back and hear what people are saying it changes how people perceive like for example when we there's a couple of times in the script where Officer White says uh, I love black mamas Um, God knows I don't want to mess with no black mamas and their babies. Now, when a man says that, a white man says that from the audience, people are asking me, why was he blacksplaining? That's what they call it, blacksplaining. He's like using black terminology, but he's a white man. But when a white woman says it, they hear it as I love black mamas. They hear it as like this white woman is trying to meet this black child where they are at so it's so interesting how the words haven't changed but because it's a man a white man or because it's a white woman it changes radically what people are hearing and experiencing so wow (laughs) (laughs) right right. Right. (laughs) isn't it so interesting yes absolutely 
So yeah, I think that that would be uh, in my dream world. I would love to do it like that one day. Uh, but yeah, it was really well received in Newark. And then we did an off Broadway run, uh, three performances in a uh, festival at the Latea Theater. And my mom, who plays mm-hmm. Juror Nine, Pamela Fordham, she got nominated Best Actress in that festival. It was over a hundred, over a hundred productions, uh, over a hundred shows that were shown in that wow. festival. I know she got nominated Best Actress, and the production got nominated Best Play. So we did pretty well. Is she times. juror number nine in the, yeah, this Yeah, she's one? juror nine in this so, one as well. So she's yeah, staying she with the same character. That's right. But, you, but, you all, all, but at that particular production, you played juror one of the three. Juror, juror three. Yeah. What, what's it like being the director and one of the performers? How, can you separate that? Well, let me tell you. The real problem is <laughs> I feel so deeply about the things that I write. I so tell. what ends up happening is... I do. I cast. I'm doing casting, and I'm like, it should be said like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I find myself like doing the thing that directors shouldn't. I I don't. I actually have seen a lot of directors do this, but I do not think it is the most advantageous way of creating with folk, which is to just get up and start doing the performance. Mm. Just like this is what I want you to do. I I don't like. I've been in productions where that's kind of done to me, and I don't like that. And I don't like to do it to actors because they're artists. They're artists. It has to make sense in their own brains, in their own souls, in their own bodies. So I hate to do that. But when I find myself doing that, then I'm like, maybe I should just play the juror. Maybe (laughs) I should just play it. (laughs) So that's how I ended up juror three. But I've had to have a come to Jesus because I really want to be juror seven, which is uh, in many ways kind of the I don't care of the group. She Mm. says what she wants. I mean, she says exactly what is on her mind. She doesn't care. She's the one who says the N-word a lot. She's ah. throwing this N-word around. Um, she's kind of like a social media influencer kind of girl who's got like a large following of people. And she's kind of probably gotten that following from being outrageous. And I've always wanted to play her. And my husband's like, you're no seven. You're no, <laughs> you're no juror seven. I'm like, oh, you're right. I'm not. <laughs> but it would be so fun. It would be so fun to play. <laughs> well, we're going to go through every juror when this is done. We'll see which ones uh, we should all be. Okay, okay. we'll take a, take a time out on what's next. We'll come back. We're having a great conversation with Tanisha Fordham, uh, the uh, director, the writer of uh, Twelve Mo Angry Man, on stage at Ujima Theater through December seventeenth. Take a time out. We'll come back with more. This is what's next on WBFO. Experience the magic of the classic It's a Wonderful Life as a live radio play. Buffalo Toronto Public Media and Niagara University's Theatre Department present this heartwarming tale of community on Saturday, December 16th. Join us at our downtown studio for a unique performance filled with music, voice actors, and fully sound effects, just like the golden age of radio. Attend either a dress rehearsal at 11 a.m. or the final taping at 4 p.m. Tickets are $15. Get yours now at wned.org events. Birds, whether common or rare, delight me. That's what our new Now We're Birding and Enjoying Nature Club is all about. Oh yes, and the best is being with people who are also interested in wildflowers, animals, and of course, birds. Come along with us, won't you, Peter Hall and me, Stratton Rawson, as we lead monthly excursions to Tift or Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserves. To sign up, go to wned.org front slash birding. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? 
email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to What's Next. Our guest this morning, Tanisha Fordham, uh, the writer and director of 12 Mo Angry Men at Ojima Theater through December 17th. Uh, boy, Tanisha, you, you've opened up a, a lot of uh, really interesting uh, things here for me, and I really do appreciate this. And I want to get into some elements, other elements of your background as well. But let, I want to stay with the, the play here for a little bit more. Um, what? It's kind of a general conversation, but what do you see when you now look back? Now you're in the audience. You, you're, you're not performing. You're in the audience at Ujima watching what's going on. What do you see about humanity when you're watching those 12 people on stage? What are you, what are you learning? Wow, that's a really great question. You know what? The really interesting thing is that I think I see on the stage. Okay, so of course I know all of the back working, right. what it took for us to get that piece on stage that way. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Understood. And of course no one else, no one in the audience knows that. So I, very kind of interestingly enough, I see how relevant it is because I've been a part of every conversation that had to happen in order for that to happen on the stage. And I think that it's really, really interesting. Even just, and I, I think I shared with you earlier mm. before we were on air, it's really interesting even just in conversations that I have with people that have, not been a part of the production, how much people are unwilling to consider something that they don't agree with. Like you don't have to, listen, I, I am a Jesus girl. I am a God girl. That's what I bring in every space. People know it. But when people tell me that they're atheists, I'm very, very interested. Tell me about that. I'm interested in how you came to that. Have you always been an atheist? Were you born in an atheist family? I'm interested in that. I'm interested when I meet people who are Buddhist or Muslim or whatever, however people okay. identify. Um, but I do not find that to be the case necessarily universally. I don't find that that is how we often show up. We don't often, uh, I, I don't find that people are often really willing to really uh, contemplate other people's existence, how other people feel, uh, what other people think. And so when I watch the show, I am watching, first of all, how that happens inside of the narrative. How there is so much tension, so much hatred, so much anger that there are so many words that are being kind of like thrown out. It's kind of like, my goodness gracious, there are so many people inside of this space, inside of the narrative. Do you not care about anyone else in the room? So that's kind of the first thing that I'm seeing. Mm. But the second thing that I'm seeing is I'm looking to my actual left and right in the audience. Right. And I'm listening to how people are responding. And I'm thinking, this is so needed because what's happening on the stage is happening in the audience. And it's so crazy because it's like that. Uh, it's like all of these movies where like people are like Groundhog Day, like Groundhog Day, and they're waking up and it's the same thing again. And it's the same thing again. And it's the same thing again. And no matter how hard you try, you can't get out of this loop of the day. You cannot get out of it. So it's like I wrote a play because I really wanted us to have a conversation. But then here's the challenge. The challenge is that the people who are in the audience are the people in the play who I wrote about. We are those people. So it's nearly impossible to have a real conversation because those same biases, that same unwillingness to listen, that same unwillingness to see other people's humanity that's happening in the narrative of the production 
is happening in the audience. So even as people are watching it, they've made their decision about what they eat, what they feel about the play, what they feel about the jurors. So interesting. And I don't know. And, and that, that is absolutely not a, a, letting myself or anyone else off the hook like well so what's it what's it worth there's no reason to do it no we have to do it we have to do it we have to say the thing but it is like really really interesting how alive all of that tension is in our real world and even in our audiences day to day in your character development what what informed you with uh with each character Um, did you again you talked about the the main character we never see of course uh, the the officer Officer norman yeah. yeah um but what about the, the characters? How did you develop them? This is a really cool piece from a writing perspective in that I was writing people that I knew very personally. Really? Every single juror up on that <laughs> stage is someone in my life. In some cases, in some instances, me. In some of the characters, I think I'm alive on the stage. And I'm like, you know, uh, in ways that I'm proud about and in some ways that I'm not proud about, to be, if I'm fully frank and honest. Not proud. What? Yeah. Like, I think, um, like, Juror 7, who I told you I want to play. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think Juror 7 is, like, who I would be if I weren't a God girl. I think like (laughs) if I didn't feel the pressure of like showing up in a way that honors God, my community, my grandfather, my mom, my husband, my son, you know, all these things, I think I'd be a little more rambunctious and I'd throw out some curse words and, you know, she drops a few F bombs and, (laughs) and I'm not proud of that. You know, and here's the thing. I'm like, I don't, I don't think, I think if I were to curse a lot of people, most people would probably be very surprised. However, I am not exempt from feeling that way. You know what I mean? And I would love if I could say that I truly only feel love and light and, you know, kindness and compassion towards everybody. But I don't. Sometimes I'm like, really like y'all are like one of her lines is y'all are really faded in here. She's she's like, she she said, you're the blackest one here. Somehow you think you're exempt from the struggle. And that's sometimes I sometimes I'm looking at folks like, do you not know that you're a black man? Do you not know that you can't see that? What's going on with you? <laughs> so I think that I, I see myself alive in some of the characters, but um, every every single juror, I know someone or some ones um, in my life who are those folks. So it was pretty easy and, and lots of fun and easy to write. Anybody come life. back at you and say, why did you make me juror number four? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kanjani, who's juror number seven right now, ironically, like the very first thing that she, she sent me an email um, Right after, was it email or did she talk to me in person? We had a conversation right after she got cast and she said, oh my God, I don't even use the N-word in my real life. How am I going to do this? I'm like, I don't know. And then uh, Christian, who's juror 11, um, Christian Hines, he, uh, um, he's juror 12, I'm sorry. Christian Hines, who's juror 12, he's like such a sweet, he's like 24, he's like this sweet young man who's like wants to go to Juilliard and Yale for you know for his master's degree in acting and he is a oh my god juror 12 is a jerk Mm. and so he has said that like when he goes to work during the day he said like he'll find himself like being confrontational towards folks and people will be like the play has gotten in your spirit It is time, like they're like you're doing method acting. It is time to step away from the script. <laughs> so yeah, I think everybody probably feels that way in some ways. Oh, and our Nazi character, which is actually not as lighthearted and funny, but our Nazi character um, Cordell, he uh, has just dealt with a lot of things in his personal life, but 
but as a young man, I think he's 20. He might be 20 or 20. You know, he's 20 because they all, they're always talking in rehearsal about how he's not legal. Mm. Um, he's 20 and to have to die on stage every day. And he said his mother hasn't come to see the, the piece. Mm. Uh, you know, can you imagine just watching your son get shot by an officer night after night after night? Um, and to know that that's what, I mean, he's playing a role, but that's what so many black youth are contending with. So many black teens wonder if they're going to, are they going to make it to 30 years old? Are they going to be a, a product of systemic racism, get arrested, go to jail for something that they may or may not have done that would have been looked at differently if their white counterpart had done the same thing, counterpart had done the same thing. So uh, Cordell has off, also talked a lot about how difficult it has been for him to be on stage in that in that way every night. Mm. What about uh, the dialogue itself? What informs you when it comes to dialogue? What, how do you how do you source that? Yeah. So again, w- two things with this specific piece, and that's not always the case. But with this specific piece, the two kind of anchors um, were Reginald Rose's script. Which okay. I mean, if if you go, if if it, honestly, if you were to just read Twelve Angry Men and then read Twelve Mo Angry Men. There's such, like, I drew such inspiration from, in terms of, like, the pacing of the dialogue, the one-word responses to something that's been said, to how egregious, it's almost, it's so interesting, because it could very easily fall into the world of melodrama or caricaturism. It could very easily become, like, these are caricatures, these are not real characters, but that's the task of the actors and their finessing because how intense the intensity with which each character is written and kind of like how there is a desire to have such high impact with every single thing that is said, it would very easily come off as like, this character is out of control. And so I think it's been a task and the actors have done really well in this cast of making it human. But I do think that those are the kind of, I I use Reginald Rose's kind of um, architecture and then the second thing is the people in my real life, the conversations that I've really had or or in some instances, maybe the conversations that I have not had the joy of being a part of, but would have liked to have. <laughs> so I think those are like kind of the two things. And you said, uh, or I think I saw this in, in, uh, in some of my research, that Reginald Rose's grandson came to one of your productions? His son, Jonathan. His son, I'm yeah, sorry. Okay. His son, Jonathan Rose, um, came to our off-Broadway run Yeah, and sat in like the second or third row with another gentleman who had done a kind of deep dive of the impact of 12 Angry Men on the legal system in the United States at the time when it was written. And he wrote a book that's really well known and I hate that I can't remember uh, the name of the book right now, but um, both of them came to the same production of the show together because I guess they knew each other from his research of the, you know, the piece. Um, And it was just so great. He sent me an email you know, he came before we took pictures. He talked to me a little bit about how I developed it, why all of those things. And then afterwards he sent me an email um, and just said that he felt like it honored his father's legacy and his father's work and his father's heart for like telling stories of justice, equality. And he said, keep going. And that was just, it was just so great. It was su- it was such a deep honor because you do wonder that, you know, you wonder, does this honor the person's uh, legacy? It doesn't honor the heart of the original piece. Obviously it's a completely different piece and it might in a, in a lot of ways speak to a very different demographic of folk. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I think it also is kind of, it's a universal story, no matter who is in the cast and no matter what specific court case we're talking about. And so I, I was glad to hear that. And I, I felt really, um, 
I felt really humbled by it. And what about from a director's point of view? What did you tell your cast as you were getting ready to do this play? What did you? What, what did you? What kind of direction did you give? Uh, you know, this go from writer to director now. Okay, let me tell you. I'm actually going to critique myself okay, as a director. I'm, I'm very yeah. interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> as a director, this production, like I told you again off air earlier, this production I did not produce. You right, know, Ujima right. produced the production. We had a producer who was amazing, Brian Brown, and um, Sarah Norat Phillips also was uh, the other, the executive producer, and she's the artistic director of the theater. Um, and then we had a team, a really amazing team of people who did costumes and lighting and sound and uh, helped with the scenic design and, you know, all of those elements. When I did the production in New Jersey and off-Broadway, I didn't have that gift. So I very much went into the space with a very specific, clear, crystallized vision of what I felt the show was. And the only kind of collaboration that happened was with the actors, you know? And it's always a collaboration, because even if you tell the actor, move to the left, it's their bodies doing it. You're not, I'm not up there doing it, so it's a collaboration, right, even right. if I've, I'm giving very specific direction. This time, that was not the case. You know, there were so many people at the table. And I think that I that I was challenged by that, not, not in any way as an affront to anyone else, because everyone was so impeccable. But I think it challenged me to figure out how to sift through um, all of the collaboration and really still have a crystallized version of what was inside of my mind. Mm. And so I think that the beautiful thing is that the actors really listened and the creative team really, I think they were listening to me. And I think that ultimately what you see on the stage are pieces of all of the very crystallized uh kind of uh, images that I had inside of my mind. Having said that, what I wish, and this is where the critique comes in, I wish that I had really just said very specifically to every person on the team what it was that I was hoping to have been seen. Because even in the reviews that I've read, the things that I was bold about and said, this is what needs to happen. This is how I see this thing. This is what I meant when I wrote it. Those things, we, those things were so well received. And I appreciate the reviews that said, for example, there's a moment where the chairs, the physical chair becomes a burden to the actors because of all of the burden of this court case. Mm. And you can actually see throughout the piece that the chairs, because th there's no table, so there are chairs that are being moved around the stage. The chairs are literally becoming more and more cumbersome as the deliberation itself is becoming more and more cumbersome. And someone wrote about that in, in one of the reviews. They said that, and so that lets me know, oh, that translated. But there are things that I pulled out or pulled back from or kind of did a pivot uh, because maybe it wasn't seen universally the same way inside of the room. And I hate, I hate that I did that. And it's, and it's no one's fault except for my own. And I think that there is a way, and I think, you know, for everyone who's listening, there's always a way to kind of be a collaborator and uh, a community builder and think about and respect everyone in the room and still be crystal clear about what you've been called to do in a space. And I think when we cower, even if we think that we're cowering for the benefit of, whomever, you know what I mean? Whoever it is that we're cowering for, I think we ultimately are doing everyone a disservice because people need a little bit more you. They don't need a little bit more of whomever else because that person is already being that person. No one's being you. So if you don't show up as your full self in the room, then 
the world has missed out on whatever it is that you were going to contribute. Ah, ah. <laughs> we're going to let you take a breath and <laughs> take a break. Tanisha Fordham is our guest this morning on What's Next. We're going to take a time out, come back with our, our final moments with Tanisha. This is What's Next on WBFO. This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of December 4th through December 10th. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barich. December 4th, 1939, the Buffalo Sabres have this day to commemorate because this was the day that the American Hockey League grants an, at the time, unnamed franchise to the city of Buffalo. A big happy birthday goes out to Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, who was born on December 5th. 1965. And let's stick with performing arts for a while because quite a few high-profile artists performed in Western New York on the date of December 6th, starting with none other than dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, who performed at the State Teachers Auditorium on the campus of Buffalo State on December 6th, 1935. The Belfast cowboy Van the Man Van Morrison gave a performance at the Clark Gym on the campus of SUNY Buffalo, December 6th, 1970, and the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald, performed at Kleinhans Music Hall on December 6th, 1974. And here's a very recent one that is still making news. December 9th, 2021, the Elmwood Avenue Starbucks becomes the first unionized Starbucks in the nation. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website, Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to What's Next. Our guest for the next few minutes here, Tanisha Fordham, the author and director of 12 Mo Angry Men at Ujima Theater through December 17th. A couple of things I, I definitely want to talk about, um, uh, Tanisha, uh, not necessarily specific to the play, but your grandfather. A lot of people will know your grandfather, who is Monroe Fordham, Dr. Monroe Fordham, longtime history uh, professor and also head of the history department at uh, at Buffalo State University, as now it's known. Just talk a little bit about your your grandfather. I remember him from my days at at Buff State, uh, hanging around the the history department. Yeah. Gosh, my grandfather, uh, Monroe, and my grandmother, Freddie Mae Fordham, the the wind beneath his wings, (laughs) often not spoke about, but I have to talk about her as well. he was just, they were the reason why I feel like, and my mother, my mom, of course, were the reason why I feel like I can just do whatever. Yeah. I can do whatever. I can do anything. Like, if a show doesn't end up on Broadway that I've done, it's not because I can't do it or I couldn't do it. It's not because of some deficit inside of me. And I deeply believe that. I mean, some of my youngest memories are, you know, my grandfather had a journal that went all over the world. Um, The Afro-American Historical Association of the Niagara Frontier was an organization that he founded with a a bunch of folk here in Buffalo. And that journal preserved African-American history of people in Western New York. And that journal went all over the world, literally 
I've, I've had people write letters from Japan mm. and I mean all over the world. It was at when I went to college, I went to the library at my college in North Carolina and there are all of my grandfather's journals. Do you know that that journal was packaged and sent from the basement of our house as a little girl? I, I remember, I mean, I'm some of, I have memories of being like six years old and on a Saturday afternoon, my mom would be like, we're going to grandma and grandpa's house and we would go down in that basement and there'd be thousands of journals <laughs> and we'd all get to licking and sticking. We would lick that <laughs> stamp and stick it right on the envelope. And I mean, I'm not playing with you. It literally always took us like 12 hours. Grandma and grandpa would get us like pizza and wings and we'd just be down there listening to music because Grandpa knew that whether or not someone believed in what he felt was important, it was important because it had been it was his charge. It was what was laid on his heart. And so that told me from a very young age, if you've got to do the whole thing yourself, do it. If that's what you've been called to do, do it and do it as if you're doing it for God. Grandpa did that. He was so diligent about it. I mean, Mm. he was so diligent. And then we would package the the journals up and we would go to and it would take all four of us <laughs> we would package them you know i was so tiny i'd carry a little like plastic bag full of them we'd carry those thousands of journals to the post office and one by one they'd scan them in i mean do you understand this was over 18 years of my life we did it every month and so i just i, I he's that he was that kind of man who really like had and my grandmother too, my mom, they had what they believed in and they understood that you don't have to get a crowd of people to to kind of cheer you on. No one has to know. My grandfather never he never made he never made the news. I don't even know if people knew that the journal was coming from our house. I think they probably thought there was some huge publisher packaging. <laughs> it was coming from our house with his six year old granddaughter helping to package it. But it didn't matter because he had been called to do it and he felt that it was that important. And so I try and take that kind of drive and persistence and care for what I do into the work that I do now. So so I can see why you could be a producer, writer, director, yeah. <laughs> and actor in a production can for you sure. Imagine. <laughs> we we also know that uh, you do you teach as well, and I was struck by how you said that spirit that your grandparents and your mother instilled in you that you can do anything. I love the way you said that. Yeah. But you must see kids in class that don't feel that way. Oh, every day. Every single day I see babies who are disenfranchised, hopeless, helpless. Um, And, you know, I think that I I just recently wrote a piece, very small, uh, just a poem. It's not like a play um, called entitled Where Have All the Elders Gone? And I think that, you know, for me and my generation, I can't speak with a broad stroke because everybody has had a very different experience. But for me. Um, I had so many elders in my life and sometimes those elders were just like 10 years older than me. And some of those elders were like my mom's age. And then some of those elders were like my grandparents age, but the elders knew it was important to show up in a certain kind of way. I've never, I can, and I'm not exaggerating. I have never heard my grandfather curse. Never, not one time. I've only heard my grandmother curse once, and it was because somebody did something crazy, and we were dry. And anyways, <laughs> let's not get off on a tangent. But the point is, like, there was a standard for how they showed up around me. Now, I'm not saying that they did curse or that they didn't curse. I don't know. But isn't that wonderful that as a child, I was wasn't made to have to sift through like these are ideals, but we're not living up to them. Here's the thing. They're human, so I'm sure they were not living up to the ideals. How could they How could they be living up to the ideals? We're all frail and fragile and fragmented. But in front of me, they held the bar. 
they held the standard high. They said, this is the standard and they lived up to it in front of me. And so for me, I understood that that was the expectation and I wasn't wrestling down every day. Like this is the expectation, but the adults around me aren't doing the thing and the world around me isn't doing the thing. And the, it was, it was, it was simple for me. And that does, and I, and I always fell short of that bar, but I was always reaching for it because I believed that it was possible because I saw people in front of me doing all of the things that they were telling me to do. And so I think for young people now, I think that the charge and the onus is on the young people because the, the reality is you can't get everyone to show up in a way that's going to be inspiring and encouraging to you. However, for all of us who are listening right now, I say the onus is on the adults. I say the onus is on us to inspire the kids. I say the, 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 we have to be the people that the kids are looking up to. We are the generation that the kids are looking up to. And if we're always yelling and arguing and fussing and fighting, if we're always dismissive of people, delete, block, cancel, that's all we ever do. Is somebody going to have a conversation? Is someone going to talk to someone who is across the aisle from them? Because if not, the kids behind us are going to think like you can just dismiss people, just dismiss them and move on. And that is not the real world. That's not life. You think if I have a spat or some energy with a principal at a school that I'm teaching, teaching at, I can just dismiss the person. <laughs> she asked me to submit something by mid by midnight. I'm not going to do that. I don't, I'm not feeling that you're going to get fired. That's not the world we're living in. And so I think that we as the elders of this world right now have to show up in a way that is encouraging to the babies, you know, and, and do the thing that will help them to see that they're valuable and that their voices matter. I went to speak at Burgard high school yesterday. I'm doing a tour of a new piece um, next year. And I did the first kind of stop of the tour at Burgard. And I told those babies, I'm not getting paid to be here hmm. because Burgard, I called Burgard and asked them, could I come? Miss Charlotte Watson, who's a teacher there, put us in contact. And then I was like, she was like, you know, if you could mentor the kids. I was like, I can't mentor because I don't live here, but I can come and do a performance. And I told those babies, I'm not getting paid. I'm here because you're that important. Hmm. You matter. We need you. You're the next generation. I need you to get off this Instagram and TikTok and do the thing. And they need people to really believe in them and to show up in a way that says to them, oh, my gosh, we're valuable. This this lady came. She has a 10-week-old son, but she left her son at home with her husband and came to speak to us because we matter that much. And so I hope that we will do the thing to help the teens along. And I hope that the teens will continue to hear inspiring messages um, that motivate them to do something. We're coming down just a, a couple of minutes left here. And I think maybe you touched upon it in your answer right there. Uh, 12 mile angry man. You wrote this a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And you work every day and you're writing every day. How much of what you just said there in that answer is informing the work that you're 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 working toward right now? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to thank my husband, Robert Alston. Man, man, mm, the apple of my eye. Love him so much. What would I do without him? And that's so important for me to say because it's community. So that's the the first part that the, as the answer to your question is like it takes all of us. That's one of the lines inside of a 12 Mo Angry Men. It's going to take everyone, all of us, or the battle won't be won. So it may not seem important to whomever, my husband. They're like, why is, why is she even mentioning him? He's an engineer, has nothing to do. He's got everything to do with sure. it. Because if he wasn't at home with Sunday right now, I wouldn't be on air. There's someone who's listening to this. Maybe not every person. Maybe some people are just listening to it. They're like, okay, next thing. But there's someone who's listening to this. And their world is going to be rocked because of something that I said. And that wouldn't have happened if Rob wasn't at home with Sunday. So that's part number one. Show up. 
in whatever is the capacity that you've been called to. If you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you're working at Anderson's, make those smoothies, those French fries, that beef on weck, and smile because you don't know who is buying a beef on weck who might be on their last leg. It might be their last thing that they do. And so that is what I think we're called to do. But as far as work, I'm just doing work that I feel really inspired by. And right now, a lot of that is work for young people because I have a son and because I feel like I don't often see the type of thing that I want him to be listening to and watching. And so I want to create the kind of content that is going to inspire the next generation of young people. And uh, we have about 15 seconds left here. Hopeful, are you? I'm so hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Some questions I don't have to ask. (laughs) Anything is possible. (laughs) I love it. Tanisha Fordham is the author, writer of 12 Mo Angry Men. She is also directing it at Ujima Theater through December 17th. Tanisha, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And all your enthusiasm. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. And this has been What's Next on your NPR station in Western New York, WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.